You're listening to Faith for Normal People, the only other God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Well, it's finally time to let you know about the next book in our commentary series, which is going to be John for Normal People. Of course, it's got the best in biblical scholarship, but it's also playful. And our author, Jennifer Garcia Bashaw, has masterfully weaved these two together and explores what we might learn about Jesus when we're attentive to the text. Of course, it unpacks issues of authorship, dating, redaction history, cultural and social context, all the things that you maybe have picked up on in seven seasons of the Bible for Normal People, historical background, narrative criticism, all those big words. But it's a way to look at the text and really understand it from all of those angles. So you can buy it online wherever you get your books, Tuesday, October 10th. So go ahead, bookmark it, write it on a sticky note, however you remember things. Do it that way. John for Normal People with Jennifer Garcia Bashaw. Well, folks, today on Faith for Normal People, I'm joined by Angela Parker, who's a member of our Nerds in Residence team. So welcome to the podcast, Angela. Oh my goodness. Thank you, Jared, for having me. I am really excited for this episode because we are talking to a former student of mine on psychology, religious trauma, and reconstructing faith. This is with Matthias Roberts, who was with me when I taught at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. And I think that when I met Matthias, I introduced him to what I call the non-committal smile. And I think he practices that well <laughs> as a psychotherapist now. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, beyond that, Matthias is uh, now, post-graduating, a psychotherapist specializing in religious and spiritual trauma, um, the podcast host of Queerology, and most importantly, uh, the author of the upcoming book, Holy Runaways, Rediscovering Faith After Being Burned by Religion, which actually comes out tomorrow, October 3rd. Don't forget to stay tuned at the end of the episode for Quiet Time, where we bring Pete back in and and the two of us reflect on the conversation with Matthias and get a little more vulnerable about our own spiritual evolution. We hope that you enjoyed this episode with Matthias Roberts. How familiar are you with the shape of your pain? I think so often when we've experienced trauma, we shut down a lot of those emotions. We need other people to be able to help us integrate these experiences. I I think that is one of the core pieces to healing is being able to process through our pain in the presence of other people. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. 
We are so excited to welcome Matthias Roberts to the podcast. So Matthias, thank you so much for being with us and just wanted to go ahead and launch into our first question. Can you tell us why you became a therapist and specifically, what was it from your own faith background that led you to this profession? Yeah. Thanks, Dr. Parker. It's so good to be here. And Jared, thank you as well. Yeah. So, becoming a therapist for me was not actually in the cards. <laughs> it was <laughs> something that I didn't want to do. I didn't even think about doing. It was when, when I was an undergrad, I was a graphic designer and skipped every psychology class that I could because I didn't think it would be important in my life. So, it is something that I kind of stumbled across when I ended up at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology, which is how I met you, Dr. Parker. And I went there primarily to do a theology degree, degree in theology and culture, and started to quickly realize that so many of the questions I was asking around my own faith upbringing, things that I wanted to kind of untangle theologically, which mostly was my own pain from being gay in a fundamentalist world. So many of those questions, I started to find healing through psychological lenses instead of theological lenses. And that already sets up a binary. Um, But (laughs) I, I found there was a practicality in psychology that I was really yearning for. So, through my own healing is kind of how I arrived at this place of deciding like, oh, I I think I might actually want to help others this way too. Can I ask a follow-up question on that? Yeah. When you initially were thinking about entering and studying theology, was it just theology was not capable of answering some of the questions that you had and psychology opened up those doors? And was it really the merging of both, the integration of both that helped you unpack your story a little bit more? Yeah, I think it really was the integration. Like, (laughs) in, in realizing or awakening to this idea that so much of what we believe about theology, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, but is heavily influenced on our psychology, <laughs> kind of how how we were raised or what kind of version of Christianity or faith we're attracted to, I think deeply relates to the psychology, how we were raised. And, and so, I think the psychology started giving me answers for like, oh, no wonder I was attracted to this very rigid kind of idea of theology <laughs> because of the fundamentalism that I grew up in. Then it gave me the freedom to start to explore other ideas well within the Christian tradition, but that I didn't even know existed, and then open up to a far more abundant faith. One of the main things we want to talk about today is this idea of religious trauma. And so, at some point, I want to kind of have us go into understanding that, but I think it might be nice to come back around to that abundance and sort of on the other side of it. But can we go back and just talk about, it's, I think it's very common to talk about religious trauma. You know, you mentioned being gay in a fundamentalist world. I'm sure you didn't come out unscathed from some religious trauma. So, what is religious trauma? What forms can it take to help people with some categories here of what they may be experiencing? Yeah, 
So, I, I think about religious trauma in a couple ways. The first, I'll give you an actual definition because I always find that to be helpful. This is one that I'm borrowing from the Religious Trauma Institute. It's a definition that they use. And they define it as the physical, emotional, or psychological response to religious beliefs, practices, or structures that is experienced by an individual as overwhelming or disruptive and has lasting adverse effects on a person's physical mental, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. When I think about religious trauma, I really like this idea of too muchness. <laughs> All trauma in general is this experience of too much, too fast, too soon. And many trauma experts use this definition. It is when we are overwhelmed by something that our bodies and our nervous systems can't actually keep up with, and then it has to kind of fracture to be able to survive. And I think it's really important to mention that, that trauma, religious trauma included, is particular to every person. So, I could be sitting next to someone in church, that person could be in trauma, and I might be just fine right? Like, it is deeply related to who we are as people and the environments that we have been in as to what will actually be experienced as traumatic. So, it's not that helpful when somebody says, well, I was there too, and it wasn't traumatic to me. Like, kind of the, well, it shouldn't have been traumatic to you because I experienced the same thing and I was fine. You're saying it's a, it's a subjective experience because all of our capacities are different because of our past experiences and just our genetics and all of that. So, that too much, too fast, too soon, the two of that is personal. It depends. Yeah. Many different people can be yeah in that same room. <laughs> they might all be experiencing something terrible, but whether it actually starts to cross that line into trauma is yeah deeply personal. How can people identify that for themselves? Because again, I do think sometimes there's messaging around. There's a maybe a dismissive messaging if you're still in a situation where you you maybe have been traumatized, but you've been kind of conditioned not to categorize it that way. So, what are some common areas of religious trauma or uh, maybe and, I can say both and, common areas to kind of watch out for that maybe you aren't attuned to? Like, you might be surprised to realize this could be an area of common religious trauma, but also how do people identify it? How would you know if you have experienced religious trauma? It, it can be really overt at times. Like, like I think there are you know, many people out there who probably even just hearing that definition are like, oh yeah, like that, that describes me. But for me as a therapist, I start to look for these places of what I would call kind of fragmentation, places of isolation. Uh, I, I'm borrowing from a researcher named Kathy Lorazel there who, who talks about fragmentation, isolation being hallmarks of trauma. Um, she, she doesn't originate that research, but she talks about it well. Where are the places where we don't actually have connective memory? <laughs> where are there experiences that we can try to start telling a story and everything gets jumbled or we feel really hot <laughs> uh, and like physically hot while we're telling the story and, and can't get it out or feel really confused? That can be an indication that there might be something traumatic there. Or like, are we isolating from other people, communities, for example, many of us who have experienced religious trauma, we, we isolate away from the communities that we were once in. 
don't hear critique there <laughs> at all. But that is an indicator that there may have been something traumatic that happened because we need to get away. And so, so that can show up in you know really explicit ways, but also really subtle ways where we just shut down parts of ourselves, sometimes even unbeknownst to our own selves. This is wonderful to discuss because as you're talking, Matthias, I'm thinking about the relationship between trauma and bodies. So I'm wondering, as you're talking about religious trauma, and you've used the language of sometimes we get hot when we're talking about the trauma or we isolate, how else do you talk about what happens in our bodies when religious trauma occurs? And as a psychotherapist, what are some of the bodily ways that we can exercise that trauma from our bodies. Yeah. So, I I really like to use this example of what's called the window of tolerance. And this was originated by a researcher named Dr. Dan Siegel. And I talk about it a lot in the book because I find it so helpful. (laughs) And it's this idea of we each have our own kind of particular windows where we maintain our emotional experience. So, So, it doesn't mean that we're always good when we're in our window, but we can experience a range of emotions without it pushing us into what I would call potentially traumatizing states. And I'll describe what that is. And these will be words probably familiar to a lot of people. That's our fight, flight, freeze, and fawn responses. Fight, flight, freeze. Most people are are kind of familiar with those ideas. We run into something we need to fight or, or run away from it, or we freeze up. The fawn response is one where we kind of lose an entire sense of self and meld into another person in order to keep ourselves safe. When we cross the boundaries of our window of tolerance, we go into those areas, those parts where our body actually takes over, our brains actually take over our cognitive abilities, and we involuntarily do one of these responses. So, hear that really well. We don't have cognitive control when we enter into a space of trauma. Our amygdalas take over, our hippocampuses go offline, and our body's only job is to try to keep ourselves safe. So we can't think our way out of it. We Most of us can't stop it when it's happening. Um, we only have the ability to get away <laughs> and then try to get that experience to someone who can help us integrate it and process it which that leads us into this conversation of healing. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world 
and all of our work here at the Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Can you take us through for you, because I'd like to put some meat on the bone, so to speak, like an experience where you kind of realized that you had undergone some religious trauma and like, what's your bodily responses? And then how did you work through that? Can you kind of be a case study for this? Yeah. So I I really distinctly remember after I moved to Seattle. So this was, I was in my early twenties. I'd gone through undergrad, decided to start grad school. I had been involved in kind of conservative evangelical church space for most of my life and had just started my way kind of out of that world. And when I moved to Seattle, there there was, a, they, they called themselves an evangelical church that had just become fully LGBTQ affirming. Queer folks could be part of any level of leadership. And I heard about that and I was like, this is the space for me. <laughs> like, it matches the world I came from and I'm welcome there. And so, one, one Sunday I, I went to that church and within minutes, I started feeling hot, sweaty, feeling really hypervigilant. Like, I I distinctly remember looking around at all the people around me and feeling like I was just waiting for the shoe to drop, like waiting for someone to start berating me or see that I was, you know, visibly queer and kick me out. Like, my body was, was setting itself up for an encounter one that never came, but I needed to get out of there. I, I didn't. I shut it down. Like I, I sat on my hands. I like crossed my legs, <laughs> kind of tried to stop the shaking and just sat through the service. And when it was done, I did get out as quickly as I could. But that was one of the first experiences that I realized though, like something is going on here. This was really scary, especially to be in a place that was supposed to be safe where people were telling me, this is a safe place for you. And I didn't feel safe at all. And it took me a few years to start to have language for 
what was actually happening. I I was outside of my window of tolerance. (laughs) I was in a state where I, I, I wasn't being traumatized, but there was indicators of something has happened here. And my body couldn't discern this church from all of the other churches that I had been a part of previously. And so, healing that version to where I could even start to walk into a church again, which is still difficult for me. Like, (laughs) I still have a really hard time walking into especially churches that that feel kind of evangelical in structure. But it, it took a lot of therapy. It took a lot of getting my experiences to people who could help me integrate those, understand what was actually happening in my body, and then helping me find a more compassionate approach to my own self so that when these things happen, I, I actually can regulate them in better ways. That's, a, I think, a story for a lot of us who have been in these religiously traumatic spaces that when we encounter folks who say, oh, no, this is going to be a safe space. You'll be okay here. And then you, your body just still almost rejects it. It makes me think about, as a womanist, how I try to talk about brave space instead of safe space. And so I'm wondering if there's any correlation between how you may talk about brave space instead of safe space as you work with folks who are dealing with religious trauma. Yeah, I love the term brave space because I think it it acknowledges this reality that safety we're on a tightrope here. I was going to say safety is not necessarily the goal, although it is. Like, (laughs) both of those things are true. But we can't guarantee safety. (laughs) And especially when we're in community, rupture, disagreement, harm, hurt, like all of those things are almost a given. And so, if we want to walk into a new community and expect it to never hurt or feel uncomfortable or, or whatever, that's not the way community works. I'll use my own kind of language here is, can a space actually repair though? Can we be brave enough in a community where harm has happened? And and I'll be really clear, I'm not talking about like egregious harm here. I'm not talking about abuse, but places where we feel hurt, is the space brave enough that we can actually bring that hurt and trust that is going to be tended to and cared for by the community around us. And for so many of us, I think who grew up in churches, we've never actually had an experience of that. It's hard to even imagine. Can I have a, just a follow-up? Angela, maybe I'll ask this to you, just because we dove into some specifics, but this is a new term for me. How would you differentiate between safe space and brave space in how you guys are talking about it? Yeah, that's a great question, Jared, and happy to open that up for our audience. Brave space is essentially, for me, a womanist takes seriously the lived experiences of Black women. And so when I think about the spaces that I go into, such as academic spaces, they have been spaces curated normally for white men. And so as a biblical scholar, I'm just, as a womanist biblical scholar, a visibly Black woman, the space that I enter into in academic settings was just not curated for me. So oftentimes I go in knowing that it may not necessarily be safe, but if I find allies who 
also recognize that the space may not be safe, they will help me to curate a braver space where the other folks can begin to talk about, oh, this space wasn't not curated for you. So how do we recognize that and then begin to actually actively curate a space where even more identities and more people groups can enter into? So it's often walking into spaces that I know just were not curated for me and being brave as I do that, but then being in conversation with the people around who I can recognize as folks who will be in solidarity with me as I enter that space. I appreciate that. And so, Matthias, as a follow-up to that, kind of tying the pieces of what you said together, is it valuable? I guess it's tricky for me. So, it's a genuine question of how do we navigate and how do we be wise about, like for you, what I heard you say is coming into a church in the same way, Angela, you were talking about academic spaces were not curated for Black women churches in the last 50 years, for sure, I'm sure forever, but certainly not in the last 50 years, evangelical spaces at least, not curated for gay people to be in. And so there is a a trauma that has occurred for you previously by being in these spaces. And now, you know, you've shown up again. I guess the question I'm asking is, how do you navigate the wisdom of when is it appropriate to try to to create a brave space, like Angela's saying, of getting allies and working through that to becoming a, a space that is safer or is a space where you can have allies and be be able to show up? And when is it re-traumatizing and not helpful? Because I think some people feel compelled to like overcome this trauma and space in a way that actually just kind of re-traumatizes and then we just get in this cycle versus it actually being productive and leading to a healthier integration. Yeah. I I would love to hear Dr. Parker's thoughts on this too. Cause, cause I think you're hearing, even in the way I answered that question and Dr. Parker answered that question, like you're hearing the realities of our lived experiences, even in the ways we're answering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I love it. I love to get both these perspectives for sure. <laughs> you know, I think for me, it, it's a question of, do we know and are we familiar enough with our own capacities to know what will be kind or if it is not kind to actively choose and know what we're getting ourselves into and know what we're choosing. So, it takes a level of self-awareness, but I think we need to step away from those spaces until we've grown that kind of self-awareness where we actually have agency, where we're not stepping back into these spaces because we feel like we have to, or feel like we need to rescue the people from it, or that we can jump in and change a space and make it safe. Like, all of those are might be good reasons at some point. But if we feel like we don't have a choice, we start to get dangerously close to that re-traumatization. And I think what's interesting as I'm listening to Matthias and thinking about what it means for me and my own identity as womanist, queer identity and womanist identity are identities that have very much been placed to the margins And so I think the correlation between our identities and how we can have conversations with one another shows that there's a desire to be in community and be in belonging with various groups of people. And so we can have this conversation and say, this is how I enter back into a certain space. 
But then this is also how I retreat and isolate from that space in order to take care of myself. So it's that connection of self-awareness that Matthias has been talking about. And how do we inter-exit, 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 taking care of ourselves, but still trying to be a presence that changes a space, whether it's a, a church space or an academic space or any other unwelcoming space, but not to the point where I get myself sick or downtrodden or feeling bad because I'm forcing myself to go back into that space. Now, I only do that when I am healthy enough and self-aware enough to be able to engage for a little bit and then I tap out. That's good. Okay, well, I want to turn the conversation, if we can, to the future, you know, or maybe the the present for you, Matthias. What does your faith look like now, and what were some of the tools you had to use to get there? When we again, when we're thinking of religious trauma, everybody's response to that and and their recognition and what their faith looks like after those, you know, that awareness is different. So, what does that look like for you? So, so I I, I play with this idea a lot in the book. <laughs> about what faith actually looks like. My faith right now, I'm playing with a somewhat paradoxical idea of what does it actually look like to have no faith and let that be faith? (laughs) I think for me, because I have been so harmed by this world of faith, I'm, I'm finding a lot of freedom in this idea of faith not showing up in the ways that maybe traditionally we've understood faith is supposed to look like. I'm finding freedom in not going to church, <laughs> not talking about my faith that much. You know, Granted, I just wrote a book about it, but like <laughs> not talking about it that much. <laughs> like <laughs> That's going real well for you, Matthias, right, real yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> But letting there be kind of an absence, I think, in my kind of daily lived life, that is letting all of these other pieces come in that that feel really healing. So, it's not that I don't have faith, because I deeply do, but the expression of it looks more like I don't have any faith than having a lot of faith. Yeah, it just reminds me of my experience when I was kind of going through a faith shift as a, you know, an evangelical kind of megachurch pastor, which was very difficult because I had to preach a couple of times a week. But I had to put the Bible down for a long time, one from a very practical standpoint of like, well, I only know how to engage faith in this way. And I can't really try to shift it theoretically when practically I'm just showing up and doing the same thing every week. And so that absence allows time to that distance can help create new neural pathways, create new ways of thinking of how to engage faith in a different way. But I also think of it as a little bit of, not to bring in another concept completely, but kind of like attachment style, like this, this anxious attachment where there's this like, I have to keep it up or it's going to like go away, or I have to like do a lot to like stay close because if I don't, it disappears. And that was the messaging I was taught throughout my whole childhood. It was like, We were very much anti-works, but it sure did look like you had to work a lot to like keep a good relationship with God or the divine or whatever. And so the health for me came in like letting, like working through that anxiety and realizing on the other side of it was actually peace to just let it be. I don't know if you've experienced that at all. Yes, very much so. And and I think this is something that I you discovered in my own experience, but also through working with a lot of people now who are in this process, is that Often, when we leave a space, 
if we haven't actually kind of healed from that space, we will jump back into spaces that may have, you know, different beliefs. <laughs> we may have kind of, you know, quote unquote, deconstructed, whatever, but where they operate almost the same way. <laughs> they hinge on the same kind of anxious energy, to use your language there, that actually keep us stuck in a very similar loop. So, it's not to say they are the same, but our bodies experience them as kind of the same. They hinge on the same mechanisms, maybe in and out politics or, you know, fill in the blank. I think that stepping away so that we can actually start to find healing, experience what peace might actually feel like in our bodies, then allows us to step into maybe familiar spaces or new spaces and not repeat some of the same things that used to feel comfortable. I'm wondering, and this is for both Matthias and Jared, what the potential of experiencing other faith traditions looks like as you've come out of fundamental or even mega church faith traditions. And I ask that because I'm sitting here and thinking through my own Black faith tradition and how I've gone through my own changes. And I'm just wondering if experiencing other faith traditions, and for a Black woman who also has been in more conservative, all-white faith traditions as well. What does experiencing other faith traditions look like for first you, Matthias? Yeah, you know, for, for me, I found refuge in the Episcopal Church, like I think many people have for a season, where, you know, I had never experienced liturgy before. I didn't know what the church calendar was <laughs> at all. <laughs> like, like, I was like, what? There's a calendar? Um, <laughs> And like it was so different from the world I grew up in that it allowed me to practice this deep faith that I had and still have, but in a way that that kind of bypassed all of the pain points that were present. And I think, you know, it was when I was in the Episcopalian church that I came out <laughs> and like, I didn't even really have to come out because I just hung out with all the queer folks and people just assumed. And it felt really good <laughs> that I didn't have to come out in church. So, just like explicitly, it gave me a whole new way of experiencing faith and an imagination for what faith could look like that, yeah, bypassed these places so they could start to heal. And I think that was vital to, to my experience, was experiencing that that tradition. Mm -hmm. I would say just as a follow-up, for me, something that you said earlier was really helpful in answering your question, Angela, that I think you mentioned, Matthias, and that was agency. And I think that was a huge byproduct of experiencing other faith traditions. I think growing up, there was this idea of church shopping, right? And it was like a bad thing to... You're just going to fit whatever church, you know, fits your fancy. And it's sort of like as a way to get away from the more difficult, we would always say like Bible believing that the truth is hard to swallow and you're going to go to one of these cotton candy churches and you're just going to like church shopping. But under that rhetoric, what I actually experienced was once I saw that the way I grew up wasn't the only way to be Christian or to be spiritual or to be religious even, 
actually gave me agency because it gave me choice. It gave me more experience, a breadth of understanding of what it is that we're trying to do in these communities and how we're trying to express our faith and what are we trying to get at here. And that information and knowledge, not just in my head, but sort of in these bodily experiences, I think gave me a sense that I, in some ways, am responsible for my own spirituality. And I don't mean that necessarily in this like hyper-individualistic sense, but just in a sense of having a voice and agency in my own spiritual maturation, which was incredibly helpful to me because my tradition was often one of you have the responsibility to do it, but not necessarily the authority. So all the weight is on your shoulders, but you're sort of a passive agent in this, which leads to a lot of anxiety. So that's kind of been mine. And, and maybe I'll t- pass it back to you, Angela, on how has that been for you? Again, coming from a, a Black faith tradition, I appreciate that we all come from different perspectives and traditions here. Yeah, I think what's interesting for me is the expansive nature of faith, that there are so many different ways that people practice their faith, whether it's through high church or through liturgy or thinking about their own spiritual maturation, as you've put forth, Jared, and recognizing that faith and getting to, I think, my final question, that God is so much bigger than our own little slices or corners of the world in which we've been brought up. I think we've been led to believe that it has to be this precise way of practicing faith. And if you don't do it in this precise way, then you're completely wrong. But I think as we look at the world and we look at the varying ways that people practice faith, that it opens up so much more possibilities for us. And even as Matthias has written in his own works, the different ways that we can think about God and faith in Jesus and and constantly explore them. And so I think for my final question for Matthias, as you've delved into your own faith journey and perhaps reconstruction, I'm wondering what your picture of God looks like. How have you reconstructed who God is for you now? And I think you've written about not simply flipping from a conservative God to a progressive God, but I'm wondering if there's any type of multiplicity in God for you. Could you define for me how you're thinking about multiplicity there? That's a great question (laughs) because I'm, and now this is really coming from my own Black faith tradition, which I'm constantly wrestling with, this idea that God does not change. And because oftentimes people believe in my Black faith tradition that and hold fast that, you know, God can't change. And also even this idea that Jesus can't change, that there's only one monolithic way to understand God. And it may just be that I want to push my own Black faith tradition to think about God in probably a multitude of ways instead of one static way. And so that's how I'm beginning to define multiplicity. It's something that I feel like I've come back to time and time again throughout my life and throughout all of these different kind of versions of faith that I was part of. 
was this fundamental idea of God as love, which I realize is almost a, I mean, a cliche sometimes when, when we have these conversations, but it's deeply meaningful to me. And I think this journey, like one lens to look at it, is discovering more and more and more how vast and open that love actually is. So when I think about God, I mean, I think about love. <laughs> and I think about this non-competitiveness that I now believe is is kind of one of God's attributes. Can you unpack non-competitiveness yeah. God? Yeah, I'm happy to. And come to this through kind of a Girardian lens, the, the philosopher René Girard, and also through a, th- a theologian named James Allison, who's a scholar on Gerard. But Allison talks a lot about this idea of God not being in competition with anything. (laughs) God is and is not against. And I think that that idea, you know, frees us up to actually be human. And and I I think, you know, Allison is not the only theologian who talks about this. I think Dr. Parker, you'll know if I'm getting this all wrong, but I think is it Catherine Tanner who talks about this as well? Like this idea of this actually frees us up to be fully human (laughs) because God is not against or in competition with humanness. In fact, God actually designed us (laughs) to be fully ourselves. And and so, that's some of what I mean when I think about this this non-competition. We could go deep there into atonement theory and all those other things, but, but this idea that we're actually freed up to be the most ourselves as we were created to be and, and that is, you know, what God, what Jesus <laughs> has come to kind of reveal to us. We get to be us. And I find that so freeing and deeply beautiful. As we wrap up here, just a, a final question. I want to kind of come back in two ways. One, to the idea of religious trauma and two, to some practicalities. You know, we kind of in this conversation have gone from trauma to kind of reconstruction and the ability to explore and navigate questions of God and faith. And I think for some people, they're stuck between those. They've recognized the trauma piece of that, but they haven't worked through it. They haven't healed in a way that allows them to explore or to be curious or wonder what faith might look like because there's still so much pain and so much hurt and so much healing that needs to be done. So, as we, as we kind of wrap up our time, what are some steps? What would be some ways that people who are interested in saying, oh, I wish I could get back to that point where I'm, I'm curious, I'm interested, I want to be interested in what God looks like and how I can reconstruct God in my life, but I'm not quite there yet because of church trauma or other religious trauma. So, what are some practical steps that people can take to kind of move that needle, so to speak? The first thing I would say is like, if you're not interested, pay attention to that. Like, you don't have to be interested. And can you actually give yourself the space and freedom to not be interested and not feel a requirement there? And trust that if you are kind of meant or want to come back at some point, that you will. Um, (laughs) that, That time will allow that. That there isn't something wrong with not striving 
<laughs> so that feels kind of fundamental in how I think about this, because that's actually also reintroducing agency. Like you get to choose. Mm -hmm. If you're at a point of where you're like, I am interested now, or this is prompting something, I feel something within myself that wants to explore this more. Then my question would be, how familiar are you with the shape of your pain? Have you actually dug into your pain and allowed yourself to be angry, allowed yourself to grieve? I, I think so often when we've experienced trauma, we shut down a lot of those emotions. Not always, but quite often. And many of us don't actually have access to them. We need other people to be able to help us, and I'll use the word integrate again, help us integrate these experiences. And that requires us to, one, know what our pain actually is, and two, feel the emotions that we haven't been able to feel yet. I, I think that is one of the core pieces to healing, is being able to process through our pain in the presence of other people, so hear that well. We, I don't think we can do it alone. There are things we can do alone, but I don't think healing can necessarily happen in isolation. We need other people and need community to be able to hold us with kindness and care so that then we can stitch these pieces back together, which allows us to then you know, find more agency and more choice and freedom in these spaces. So there's no three steps to healing, unfortunately. But it is, it's a process. Wonderful. Thank you, Matthias, for reminding us that healing is messy, even though that's super frustrating. And I wish there were three steps to healing. I thought this was what it was all about. I thought this whole episode was going to be you telling us the three steps to healing. So I wish. Yeah. Now, this just was a soothing, calming episode where we were just thinking through all of these questions and how we can get there. But we're always striving to get somewhere. I think that's just trying to be human. Mm -hmm. I'm not exactly sure what our whole complete healing looks like. I think we're always on that journey. Mm. Thanks so much, Matthias, and best of luck with the book and everything. It was great to have you stop by and have a chat with us. Thank you. And now for Quiet Time with Pete and Jared. So, uh, Jared, you and Angela talked with Matthias about hallmarks of religious trauma. So, you know, I'm just wondering, have have you experienced yourself any sort of religious trauma besides working with me? <laughs> yeah, that's not religious trauma. No, isn't it? That's a different kind of trauma <laughs> altogether. That's for a private setting with my you know, therapist. That's for a therapist. No, I don't. I don't think I actually. You know, I was trying to give it thought as we were talking, even before and and since thinking about it, my own experience. And I don't think I have experienced religious trauma. I, I've never felt a sense of overwhelm by demands or by pressures within a religious setting. And I think some of that is my personality. I've always been a little bit uh, wary of authority, so I didn't take that on. I, there's a lot of people I know who that is not the case. And they took that serious in terms of the demands. Um, not that I didn't take it seriously and not that I didn't work to it, but it, it always went through my own filter. So it always felt balanced in the sense of it was, it was always filtered through what can I handle? What can I hand? If it felt mm -hmm. overwhelming, I just didn't do it. And so I think that's um, unusual. I mean, I think it's great. I think it's unusual, especially given, you know, you're, you're more evangelical-ish or maybe oh, even yeah. fundamentalist background, right? In, yeah, I agree. The great what, state of Texas. And that, though, I think that goes into the second reason in terms of my personality and upbringing. I often joke 
to my mom. Sorry, mom, if if you're listening to this, which I doubt you are. But I, I often joke that my parents weren't good fundamentalists as much yeah. as they wanted to be. They tried, but you know, it was sort of like you can't listen to non-Christian music, and it's like, well, my mom loved Motown and Michael Jackson too much, like that. It that wasn't going to work for her. And so she kind of just didn't do that. And so I kind of picked up on that and it it just didn't lead to, so I was definitely raised in a tradition that could have gone fundamentalist because of, it was a fundamentalist teaching, but it got filtered through my family system where they tried really hard to take it seriously. They wanted to, but in reflection, I'm like, eh, you weren't that good at it. And thank goodness you weren't. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I see it as a good thing, although my mom may still think of it as a bit of a like, oh, maybe I should have done a little better. But yeah. um, because look, look where we are. Look, <laughs> look at the, where we are Look at this podcast and what we're doing. But <laughs> what about you? What would you say in terms of religious trauma? Well, I've given that some thought too. And I'm, you know, one caveat, I'm sort of wary of using the word trauma too casually because there are people that have experienced deep trauma. But I think, you know, if trauma is defined by you know, something that happened in the past that stays with you, which I guess is a minimalist definition of trauma, then, yeah, I mean, I think I still have, at times, I mean, I'm working on it, that voice in the back of my head. Oh, there you go, Pete. Just like they said you would, you're becoming a liberal or some bad person. And, you know, I've learned to address that rather quickly and move on, but it's still something that sticks with me and it comes from being part of a community that was not as let's say free-formed and shapeless <laughs> as yours was <laughs> you know yours was shaped but you know you didn't have a lot of the triggers that some people have but and you know and I I, I don't want to get into where that was people who know my story can put the pieces together but when you you're part of a group a tribe that holds very tightly to theological formulations and then you start and you sort of buy into it, although I never really did that well. But even so, you leave that and it sticks with you. And and it's it's a recurring thing that that comes up. And One thing we haven't talked about before, but I it just came up when I was thinking about it. I don't want to lose this question. Because for you, I don't – you've said you, you didn't fully buy into it. You didn't – you weren't raised fundamentalist. But I do think you have some triggers. And I'm curious for you, because I think this might be helpful to, to folks – if it's more tied to the belonging aspect of it, the social component of of the belief in the sense that you had to, even though you maybe didn't fully buy in intellectually, you had to buy into it socially. And you were always in, in fear of getting kicked out of the group. In your case, that also meant losing your job, which right. I think has a bit of a traumatic experience just in that. Not mm-hmm. necessarily I bought it hook, line, and sinker, and now it like has all these triggers, but I do think there is this, and I don't want to speak for you, but I feel like there's more of like a social component for you. I, I, think, I think that's a very good thing to bring up. And I would argue that that's probably for many people in the same, in a similar situation, it's a social component and it's hard to, to divide the two because you're losing your group, your tribe, right? And it's like losing a family really is what it was for me. And and I had friends who were still there when I left. So, I'm, I'm leaving all this stuff behind. But it's, it's probably, I mean, I'm going to say it's both, you know, mm-hmm. but the, the social component should not be lost because I think that's almost the glue that keeps it hanging on. Right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it just seems like that could be a very powerful feeling uh, in yeah. terms of like trauma is like losing your social network and losing your friends and your community. 
And if you have a personality as I do that likes things like comfort and predictability and certainty, mm-hmm. that that whole structure was very helpful to me. And I think part of my own journey has been learning to just not just say it, but to actually believe in the power of ambiguity and not knowing and just saying it's going to be okay. You don't have to know everything. In fact, you can't know everything. Yeah. Well, let's take a turn here because I want to ask you, I don't know if we've ever talked about this, you know, just it, it struck me with Matthias talking about being queer in a church space and his response to that and how it was uh, uncomfortable for a time and all of that. So what it did, it sparked a question of of what was your own journey in becoming affirming of queer folks in faith spaces? Was it theology, doctrinal, personal story? It just wasn't doctrinal. It wasn't, it wasn't a theological conviction. I think those things came along later. It was more, and you know, I'm trying to like sit here and say, when did this happen? And it's definitely a process. It wasn't like one day I just woke up. But I think, you know, it was it was probably personal. It's basically seeing people, right? And, you know, hopefully getting to a point in your life where you don't want to judge people right away and just seeing. I mean, it's, it sounds elementary, but I think it is elementary. These are human beings. We share the same DNA, basically. And there are people just like me, and they're who they are, and I'm who I am, and that's all there is to it, end of discussion. You know, and that was that was based on experience, which then has gone into, you know, reconfiguring hermeneutics or theology or anything else. How about you? I mean, again, I can't imagine you grew up affirming in your house. No, right? no, 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 for sure. But mine was, it's the opposite in two ways. One, mine's a very distinct time frame. I, I remember it very clearly. So it didn't, it wasn't like kind of frog in the pot for me. Like it was a very specific time. And it also, for me, was more theological or intellectual and less personal, although that certainly came afterward, for sure. I think my mm-hmm. my emotion and my conviction around it was personal, but it didn't start that way. It was I was a pastor at the time, this was like in 2008, and we were asking these questions as a teaching staff. Like, we, you know, people in the congregation who would come, they, would, they were gay and these things. And it just, I wanted to figure it out for myself. And so I've literally like bought every book I could find. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember there was a Presbyterian church had commissioned this committee to do this like broad uh, study Mm -hmm. and of course leave it to like a Presbyterian church to do that and it was like 300 pages it was it's a massive book and so I read through that and there were just there weren't as many resources in 2005 or 2008 as there are now but there was enough to change my mind basically reading through all of it I would say I was primed for it having gone through seminary where things were not black and white. So the the hermeneutical Mm -hmm. frameworks or like how I looked at the Bible and interpreted it had already shifted. And so this was an easy step um, in that, in that same direction. But yeah, it was a very clear as an intellectual process and uh, or theological process. And then um, it happened. Yeah. Over like a period of about a year, just studying through those where my Mm. default now became like, I didn't fully understand all of it, But at some point, my default in that year or two switched to being affirming and saying, yeah, you would Mm -hmm. have to kind of convince me why we wouldn't do that. Right. Well, um, maybe one more quick question, Jared. This intrigues me, and it's something that I think about as well. But Matthias talks about the structure of his faith now by saying that not having faith or specific faith practice is his version of faith. 
Have you ever felt peace in not doing anything particularly Christian? Yes. I think most of my waking hours now, but I think it started with a long evolution because there's all these feelings of guilt and what should be done and what does it mean to be Christian that were going on for, you know, a decade or more there. But yeah. What does Christian experience even mean? You know, it's like. Exactly. you, You could say breathing is a Christian experience, but I think Matthias means more like in, in an official sort of a systemic kind well, of I think way. it's the cultural norms. Institutional way almost. Of, I think it's the, the cultural norms of Christian practice. Things like, I can kind of rattle them off. It's getting up early and having a quiet time, like having a devotional and reading your Bible. It's praying several times a day, praying before meals. It's going well, to I church. get up early and I just sit there. Right. Like I don't read my Bible. I just try to be quiet for a few minutes because I need that as much as anything or just breathing. And I'd like to think that is in the framework of Christian practice, but not in the the encultured way. It's actually countercultural for that mentality to do something. Well, and the irony is, I grew up thinking that we should do everything in a, quote, Christian way. I think the irony for me is I'm at the place where, yeah, anything I do is done in a Christian way. It just, it just is, because that's where I am. And so, like you said, it's not I feel like it, it goes back to, not to get too nerdy about this, but it's using the word Christian as an adjective, like mm-hmm. Christian music, Christian practice, Christian, it's like, well, I don't need, the the adjective is a marketing term. It's it's a way to like mm-hmm. label one particular way of being in the world as, a, as though that's the quote Christian way. Right. And if one of the main things we do on this podcast is show how diverse Christian expression, belief, and practice can be. And so- there's not a lot that we could do that couldn't be called Christian in some form or fashion if we're talking about things like meditation or, and again, for me, it's not even that. It's like, it's showing up with kindness and grace to people who are acting out against me because there's something else going on in their life. Like, Mm -hmm. that's me acting in a Christian way. Like, that doesn't, even talking about it in this moment, I'm realizing I don't even really understand the question anymore. <laughs> you know, that, yeah, me too. Exactly. It's it seems very culturally driven, which is fine. We're all culturally driven, but it's like it's so embedded in a certain culture that that if we're, we don't see the sense in that culture anymore, the question as it's asked doesn't make a lot of sense. You right. know, right? Anyway, yeah. And, but but I think that does wrap to kind of what Matthias is trying to say. And I think what we're saying here is, yes, I felt a lot of peace in not doing anything particularly Christian because it's not yeah. what my Christian faith looks like is to do things Christianly anymore. Right. And that is, uh, yeah, very peaceful. That's All the right. end of that. We That's the end that. of that. Yeah. yeah. So, you know what? As a, as a closing remark, what we do, this is called quiet time. So, we are having our quiet time right now, Pete. We are. So, I take it all back. Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. In addition, you can let us know what you thought about the episode by emailing us at info at thebiblefornormalpeople.com. You've just made it through another episode of Faith for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch our other show, The Bible for Normal People, in the same feed wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People team. Brittany Prescott, Stephen Henning, Wesley Duckworth, Savannah Locke, Tessa Stoltz, Danny Wong, Natalie Wyand, Jessica Shaw, and Lauren O'Connell.